won't steal any of his thunder as he comes up and reads from God's Word. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and holy and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established and you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Thank you very much, Ian. You may already sort of have a sense of what sermon series we are in for the summer, which is all about summer in the Psalms. We're trucking through a number of Psalms uh, over the course of the summer. And the title for today's message is simply this, from Psalm 99, uh, The Wonder of God's Holiness. The Wonder of God's Holiness. And the word wonder is not a word we might use, although we might say, I wonder what that person was talking about. Um, so, but we often don't use the word wonder. You might be thinking of the movie Wonder. Has anyone seen the recent movie Wonder? My kids, Loretta, there's a few of you. My kids loved this film. And by the way, that's not me saying everything in the film is fantastic. But my kids love the film. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the film. And so let's define this word wonder to sort of give us a better understanding of it because today's message title is The Wonder of God's Holiness. The definition of wonder is this, a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar or inexplicable. Uh, for myself, I think about a, a time of great wonder in my life was when my son, Isaiah, was born, and he was our firstborn, and it was all brand new for me. And he was a big baby, by the way. Not that that really, that, maybe that was part of my wonder, like, wow, he's 10 pounds. Um, but anyhow, I remember that day he was born, June 12, 2006, holding him in my hands, and he was a heavy, heavy little guy. And, uh, it, but it was just an amazing thing to hold this brand new baby. He's just entered into the world. There's this sense of, I get to do this. I somehow was a part of this process. My wife was certainly doing all the hard work. I'm just sort of present, you know, holding the baby after. How nice is that? But there was, there was that sense of, uh, look, look at these brand new hands, this brand new feet, this brand new beautiful baby. And I look at him with this sense of wonder, right? The, sense, the feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unfamiliar, inexplicable. Another example of wonder that sort of causes my brain to explode with amazement is the sheer size of the universe. Now, I am not an astronomer. I, I look at Bruce. He's kind of our resident astronomer of sorts. I don't know if he likes that or appreciates that or annoy, is you know resentful. Uh, but anyhow, don't quote me on any of these details. But... Um, I want to talk about the size of the universe for a, a, a little bit here and the sheer size of it. For example, let's talk about how far away is the sun from the earth. Does anyone happen to know this? I'm sorry? You got it. 93 million miles away. And we don't really have an understanding of how far that is. 
I mean, when you look at the sun, is it the, it's essentially the same size as the moon, but which is closer? The moon, okay, yeah, this is patronizing. Uh, but it's 93 million miles away from Earth, and so that would take us, if space shuttles were still in operation, it would take you traveling in a space shuttle to get to the sun, it would take seven months of continual travel to get to the sun. Seven months of constant travel, and that is going at a very high rate of speed. Um, and so that's why the sun is as small as it is compared to the moon. It's about the same size, but it's 93 million miles away. There's a sense of wonder about that. Do you get a bit of a sense of wonder? But let's say you want to travel to the next closest star in our sky, the next closest star to Earth after the sun. How long will it take you? And I guess it's Proxima Centauri. How long, and I don't even know how long of a distance that is, but how long will it take you to get to travel essentially from here to that next closest star in the fastest spaceship available to us today. How long will that take you? Well, don't pack your bags for a mere seven months or even five years. You need to pack your bags for 70,000 years. 70,000 years in the fastest spaceship we own today to get to the next closest Star. There's a sense of wonder in that. You see what I'm saying? All right, let's ratchet it up even more. You likely have heard about the Hubble telescope that is surrounding Earth. It's like a satellite. And the, the photos from the Hubble telescope are just fantastic. And you see, the reason why the, the photos from the Hubble are so great is because those photos are not inhibited by the atmosphere of the Earth or any dust or, 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 or clouds or anything like that. Therefore, the photos are just amazing. And the question is, when the Hubble telescope uh, shows some of the most distant galaxies in the night sky, how far away are those distant galaxies from us here on Earth? How far away are... And there's a few examples of these distant galaxies. Uh, here's how far away they are. The light entering into the Hubble telescope today from those distant galaxies, it came from those galaxies billions of years ago. That's when that light was first emitted from those far reaches of the universe. Billions of years ago is what, how long it took that light, traveling at the speed of light, to get to the telescope. And so it's, it, it's inconceivable. We can't get our minds around how, how vast and massive our universe really is. And there's a sense of wonder with that, a sense of admiration caused by something as great and beautiful uh, as the universe is. Now think about this. The, here, let's ratchet it up even more so. <laughs> who made the universe that we see today? Who is the one who constructed it and put it all together? Who made the sun so that it was exactly about 93 million miles away from Earth? Who made the next closest star in the sky in these distant galaxies that takes billions of years for the light to travel so that we can actually see it? Well, God, the Bible's very clear. God is the one. He put all of these things together. He put the universe together as massive and creative and beautiful as it is. And again, there's just a sense of wonder. Nothing contains God. Instead, God contains all things. He contains the entire universe. And that's the God that we worship. And that gives us a sense of worship towards him and just amazement about how great and good and creative he is. But here's the thing. Let me bring this in to where, what we're looking at today. Psalm 99 is all about you and I experiencing a sense of wonder, not as we look necessarily at creation or the universe, 
but a sense of wonder at looking at God's holiness and also his love and his grace for us. And so I pray that today you'll sort of be blown away with a sense of wonder as you look at his holiness and also the fact that he actually reaches down to us to connect with us and have a relationship with us as we trust in him. All right, let's get into Scripture itself. Psalm 99, the theme of Psalm 99 is God's holiness. Let me prove this to you. Verse 3 says, holy is he. Verse 5 says, holy is he. Verse 9 says something a bit different, but it says, our God is holy. So the message that is being conveyed to you and I today is this, God is holy. God is holy. Now, what is holiness? You need to know that God's holiness is a little bit different and deeper and richer than our potential holiness as followers of Jesus. Let me explain this a little bit. Uh, God's holiness, yes, it consists of his moral purity and his moral excellence, okay? The fact that in God there's no evil, there's no badness, there's no wickedness, there's no corruption in God at all. There is only purity and goodness and moral cleanness in God. And so he is, he is the most morally excellent person in the universe, unlike human beings. But another aspect of God's holiness uh, that's different from our potential holiness, because we can reflect some of that moral purity if, as we trust in Christ, uh, but another aspect of God's holiness that's different and exclusive to God is the fact that God is separate from, other than, different from all other creation. Why is that? Why is God separate and distinct from all other creation is because God is transcendent. Maybe you are familiar with that word to some degree. It's kind of another word that we don't often use, but he's transcendent. I'll explain that later. He is over and above all other things. Our vast universe, he's over and above it. All right, he made it all. He is greater than all. He is more powerful than all, more knowledgeable than all. He is more present than all. He is higher than all others in the universe. That's big. He is transcendent, and, and God's holiness, it pervades his entire being. It shapes all of his other attributes, as one Bible commentator put it. So here's the thing. Here's what I want to sort of give you a bit of a heads up that we're looking at today. There's essentially two basic parts of Psalm 99. In verses 1 through 5, it's all about being in wonder and amazement at God's holiness and His transcendence, okay, in and of Himself. So God is really the focus of verses 1 through 5. Then, uh, verses 6 through 9, it's all about being in wonder and amazement that this holy, great, transcendent God would have any time for you or for me because of His greatness, because of His transcendence, because of His holiness, that He would, as, whole, as unholy and sinful as we can be, and conduct ourselves, all right? That's the outline, in a sense, and we'll see it. Let's now move on. There is a sermon outline in your bulletin if you do want to fill in the blanks. Number one is simply this. His transcendence and total reign as king over... I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Seeing the wonder of God's holiness means being amazed by his, A, his transcendence and total reign as king over all. We get this from verses 1 and 2. It says that... If you have Psalm 99 in front of you, it's very helpful. Uh, and it's on the outline as well. And you can kind of see where I'm going here. Uh, verses 1 and 2 say that the Lord reigns, that he, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. By the way, does anybody know what a cherub is? It's an angel. Yeah. And two angels make a, or more, two or more angels make a cherubim. <laughs> Would you say a quorum? 
<laughs> I guess they kind of do, don't they? And so what? So the word cherubim is used in, in these verses here. And what the psalmist, the writer of it, likely has in mind are the two golden cherubim angel figurines on top of the Ark of God. Can we show that picture? And this is the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. There it is. And the idea was that God would sit enthroned above those two angel figurines. And that's where God's presence was manifested for God's people back in the day. And the idea here is, is that it's to, to show that God is over all angels, the entire angelic throng in heaven. He's that great. He's the one, in, in fact, who made all the angels as well. Then look at verse 2 if you have it there in front of you. It says that God is, the Lord is great. He is exalted over all the peoples. How many people in the world exist today on planet Earth? Anyone know? Over 7 billion and change? Any? 7 something. Is it 7.7? Somewhere in that range. That's a lot of people. And there they are on the screen. We, all, we fit them in for a giant picture. You are there. No, I'm just joking. But the idea, that's a lot of people. All right, And he's over all 7 billion people in the world today, in addition to all perhaps the billion of people who have lived already, and all the billion of people who will live in the future, who are not yet alive but will be. I mean, this is an astonishing amount of power that God has over all nations and all peoples of the world, past, present, and future. But let's look at this other idea. He's not only king of the, the entire universe, what does it mean for God to be transcendent? We've talked a little bit about it. Here's a helpful quote uh, from Theopedia.com that says this about God's transcendence. The transcendence of God is closely related to His sovereignty. It means that God is above, other than, and distinct from all that He has made. He transcends it all. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 nicely describes God's otherness from us and all creation. God is actually the one who gives Isaiah these very words to say. So Isaiah is quoting God, and this is what God says about himself. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so a key aspect, a part of God's holiness is that he's transcendent, he's over and above all creation, he's set apart, he's unique, he's different from everything and everyone else in the universe. Therefore, the point is, would you be at least a little bit amazed at that truth? Amazed at how other than, how great over and above all creation he really is. That's a part of his holiness as God. Would you be astonished that he has complete and total reign over the billions of people in the world today and will have complete and total reign over the entire universe forever. There's a sense of wonder in that. All right? Let's move on to a second aspect of God's amazing holiness. Little b in your notes if you're following along. Another aspect is, yes, his moral purity, his justice, and his righteousness. This is God that we're talking about, his moral purity, justice, and righteousness, and there's a sense of wonder about how good God is and how holy and pure He is. This is another aspect. Verses 4 and 5 say that God our King loves something. What does God our King love? He loves justice. In fact, He has established, He's invented equity and fairness. All right? When we actually see equity and fairness in our culture today, that actually comes from somewhere. God had that idea of equity and fairness. It comes from God. 
Right ways come from God. Righteousness comes from God. He cannot do anything but the right thing all the time. That's what he always does. Therefore, exalt him, it says. Worship him because he's holy and morally pure and good and perfect. I've mentioned this just a few weeks ago. Uh, One of the strongest arguments in my mind that helps people, I think, or hope, believe that there is a God is the fact that we look at the laws of the land that Western society enjoys, like Canada. The laws of our land, some key laws, actually come from somewhere. Where do these laws and, and, and ideas for running a nation come from? They actually come from God himself. For example, where did the law come from that says, do not murder, or the law, do not steal, okay? Or the idea of the state taking care of her vulnerable citizens. And all these ideas come from the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus and other parts of the Bible. And because we have these laws in Canada, we get to enjoy a somewhat uh, or a healthy, some, well, this is arguable, I realize, but compared to other corrupt nations, we are much less corrupt. So it's all about degrees of corruption, I suppose. But the fact that we have less corruption than most countries in the world is because of God's Word. And what... What are these laws based upon? They are based upon the very character of God Himself. So you take God out of the picture, we got nothing. We got no laws. We got nothing but chaos. So that's why we enjoy a somewhat stable society that has some law and order. It's because of God's principles from God's Word. Therefore, let's give Him the credit that He is due. Let's recognize that He is the source of any sort of laws and and, and purity and good character in our universe today. Without His justice and righteousness, imagine how chaotic our world would be and our lives would be. Let's worship Him for His character. Let's move on. Let's adjust and transition to the second section. We've looked at the first section of Psalm 99 in verses 1 through 5. Again, that was all about being amazed at His transcendence and His moral purity and His goodness. Uh, His total reign as King over all. Now, in the second part of the psalm, in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see God stoop down. He's actually connecting with humanity. And there's a sense of, He would actually do that? He actually cares about us? He would actually desire to reach out and put up with humanity, despite how messed up I am and how messed up the world is and how corrupt the world is. And there's a sense, again, of just astonishment that he would do such a thing. And so number two in your notes, if you're following along, is simply, would you, seeing the wonder of God's holiness means being amazed that he, and that that leads us to little a in your notes, allows us to become his priests. Wow. He would allow, despite his greatness, his transcendence, his holiness, he allows you, he would allow me to become his priests. By the way, do you see yourself as a priest of God, if you're a Christian? Not many in this room, I think, would probably do that. Do you meet, meet your neighbor? Maybe your neighbor just moved in. Hi there, I'm Kurt, I'm a priest. Now, I might, they might see me as a priest because I'm a pastor, but I'm talking about you for a second. All right? I'm a priest. Now, please don't do that, by the way. I, I think it would be easily misunderstood. But do you view yourself as part of your identity as being a priest of God. Let me explain this. I'll I'll talk about that a little bit later. Verse 6a, and this is where we're getting this idea of being a priest of God, talks about how Moses and Aaron and Samuel in the Old Testament 
they were officially God's priests. And generally, what priests of God did back then was they were chosen by God, first of all, and they were chosen by God to offer animal sacrifices and blood from these animals to atone for the sins, for their own sins, and to atone for the sins of God's people. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, we don't have to have priests do this for us anymore. You know, sacrifice animals for our sins. Not needed. Not needed. Why is that? Because Jesus, the Bible's clear, he is our ultimate high priest. And when Jesus, when he was on earth 2,000 years ago, he lived our perfect life for us in our place because you couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. He did that for us. Then Jesus died on that cruel cross 2,000 years ago, and he died on that cross. All of our sins were placed upon Jesus on that cross, even though he himself never once sinned. On that cross, Jesus was punished, judged, and the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus for us in our place. Three days later, Jesus rose up from the dead to defeat Satan's sin and death forevermore. So we no longer need a priest to do this on an ongoing basis. Jesus atoned for our sins once for all. No more sacrifices needed. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He is our ultimate high priest. But here's the really amazing thing. Every single Christian has been called by God, chosen by God, to become a priest, not a priest like Jesus, he's unique in his priesthood, but a, a priest in the sense of your job is to offer a continual sacrifice of your time, of your energy, and your spiritual gifts, and your passions to serve Jesus and serve God's people and serve our surrounding world. Look at First Peter, sorry, Second Peter, First Peter chapter 2, just to throw you off. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 talks a little bit about this. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there's more to this theological idea um, of the, the priesthood of all believers. Have you, have you ever heard of that phrase before? Priesthood of all believers. And this doctrine, this theology, uh, means if you're a follower of Jesus, you're truly born again, you are a priest. He has designated you to be a priest. And now you have direct access to the very throne of God when you pray, thanks to Jesus and His sacrifice. All right, Jesus made us clean. He makes us holy and righteous in God's sight. We are clothed with, we are robed with Christ's righteousness and His holiness now, even though we can't attain righteousness in and of ourselves, but we've been given this righteousness. All our past sins have been washed away. All of our sins committed today have been washed away. All of tomorrow's sins washed away by the blood of Christ, our great high priest, because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And now, as his priest, we are free to no longer sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We will, but we don't have to. We are free to approach God in prayer directly. That's fantastic. We no longer need an earthly priest to approach God for us. Uh, do you get a bit of a sense of wonder? Like, I sure don't deserve this. I think of all that I've done, all the sins I've committed, and yet he designates me as his priest. What a gift. And anyone and all Christians who trust in him 
you're part of the priesthood of all believers, all right? Given the privilege of serving him and serving other people. All right, let's move on to our second source of amazement and wonder about our holy God and this holy God actually reaching out to us, all right? He would actually reach out to us. Little b in your notes is simply that he chooses to answer us when we call out to him for help. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. Reaches out to us. He answers us when we, we call out to him for help. We see this in verse 6b there, if you see it. Um, am I getting ahead of myself here? No, nope, I'm not. I'm on track. Again, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, they call out to the Lord. All right. What does the Lord do in response to them calling out to the Lord? Does God ignore them? Does he say, look, I'm too busy. I've got too much, too much of a universe to run here. Would you guys just leave me alone? Would you get out of here? Does the Lord say, respond in that way? No, he answers them. And a quick story here. He answers them when, he calls, when they call out to him. And the story that I want to share is from about the early part of the 1960s. And I wasn't yet born, but my brother and sister were born. They were the oldest uh, brother and sister at that time. I have five other siblings. And the, the first original homestead that uh, my mom and dad uh, started their family in was different than the house that I grew up in later. And the homestead, the, actually the home in which they lived in was two uh, granaries pushed together. Can you imagine that? You know what granaries are? Uh, that stored grain? These were wooden buildings. They just kind of pushed them together and made a house out of that. It's amazing. And of course, there was no plumbing in this house. And so imagine what the toilet was and where the toilet was located. It was an outhouse. Okay, outside of the home itself. And it was a summer day. My brother and my sister, they're about anywhere from five, three to four or five years old. They're pretty close together in age. And guess where they're playing one summer day? They're playing in and around the outhouse. Okay? And uh, what, what do you think happens? You can imagine what happens. My poor sister, she's about three or four years old. She actually falls down that hole in the outhouse. Okay? Have I shared this story before? This story comes up time and time again in our family recollections. It's the famous story that we all tell and share with each other and laugh about. And my poor sister, three or four years old, falls down to the very bottom. Let me tell you, finding yourself swimming in the bottom of an outhouse hole is about the worst place you can ever be. Am I right? Has anyone actually, has this happened to you? <laughs> So what does my sister do, age three or age four? She calls out. She shrieks out, Mom! And my mom hears her. And it must have been loud, because my mom was quite a ways away. You know, back in the day, there was no such thing as helicopter parenting back then. It was more, get out of here. I don't want to see you for like five hours. Uh, my mom heard her. She comes to rescue her somehow. I think a ladder went down the hole, and... Imagine you being the parent. This is like parenting. That's, that's a nutshell of what parenting is like, really. But anyhow, my mom rescues her, gets her out of that horrible hole in, in the outhouse. She cleans her off somehow, and eventually all is well. My sister is okay. Here's my point. You and I have found ourselves in a proverbial and spiritual outhouse hole like that. And it's amazing, again, how many sins you and I have committed against God. We've, we've lied We've lusted, we've cheated, we've raged, we've been addicted to this and that and the other thing, probably still are. We've ignored God, we've rebelled against God and His ways and 
Maybe we've said, I don't like the church, and I don't like God, I don't like any of this stuff. Maybe we've said things like that. We've rejected God at some point. Might be in a place of rejection right now. I don't know where you're at. But we've committed sins of commission, which is, these are active sins, sins that we've done and committed. And then we've committed sins of omission, meaning we haven't done the things we should have been done, and that's sin as well. I mean, we're experts at sin. And if we just try to list all of my sins, and we list your sins, and we list all of, all of our collective sins in this room, that's a lot of sins. It's just hard to conceive the amount and the length of that list. That list would be long, and yet, when we first cried out to God in that hole for forgiveness, save me, help me on that day of conversion. And then later, this is what we do. We, we keep on calling out. We keep on calling out on a daily basis for grace, for grace, for grace, for mercy. I need your forgiveness yet again, Lord Jesus. And we do this continually. We cry out to God for daily help just to get through the day, just to get through the week. What does God do? Does he ignore us? Does he say, I ain't got time for you yet again, you big loser, you big sinner? No, he answers you. And by his grace, he answers me. Despite our sin, despite our unfaithfulness, despite my self-obsession, and Jesus, he takes us out of that pit. He brings us out again and again and again. He cleans us up by the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us, and then he sets us on our way to do the daily priestly duties of service that he wants you to do, that he wants me to do. Isn't this amazing? Isn't there a sense of wonder and astonishment that he puts up with us, this holy transcendent God, in this way? Thanks be to God for that, that he reaches down to us. Another way in which God reaches down to us, little c in your notes, is that he keeps his promises to us. How are we doing for time? He keeps his promises to us. We get this from verse 7. says that the Lord kept his testimonies that he gave to his people. In other words, he keeps his promises to his people. Same goes for us today. We are God's people in Christ. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. God never, ever breaks His promises to us. In fact, it's impossible, inconceivable for God to break any promises to us that He would make. I want to ask you, some of you are parents in the room. Have you ever made your son or daughter a promise, and sadly, you did not come through? Or in my case, as often happens, and is just as bad, maybe worse, you just forget you forget. And it's not good. We're going to go to Disneyland someday. Uh, I will take you out for that special one-to-one breakfast someday. Uh, I will do this. I will do that for you. And we overpromise. I overpromise. To my kids, we overpromise. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Our intentions are good, but we're sinful. We're weak. We're broken. Our memories are bad. Mine is. Sometimes our kids, sometimes we fail our kids in this way. It's just, and it's heartbreaking for our kids. So I'm not suggesting this is okay, by the way. (laughs) Thanks be to God there's grace for this kind of sin. But it's heartbreaking for our kids when we break promises. But my point is, does God do this? Does he overpromise? All right? He does not. That's what makes him God. He doesn't overpromise. When he says that he will save you, and change every person who believes in Jesus and repents of your sins, is baptized, and and, and places your trust in the finished work of the cross of Christ. And when he says that if you become a Christian, he's going to give you the gift of his sanctifying, transforming Holy Spirit to live within you, 
and help you obey Jesus and give you joy and give you, give you life from the inside out. And then when God says, and Jesus says, when he shared with the disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you in eternity. When God says all of these things, all gives us these mind-blowing promises, you can rest assured he is coming through for you. He intends to keep every single one of his faithful promises to you. He has never, ever failed, and he never will ever fail you at all. He will not fail. He did not fail Moses, Aaron, Samuel, and he will never fail you either. Do we deserve to be lied to God? How would you answer that? Do we deserve to be lied to by God? Do we deserve for God to break his promises to us? Bait and switch? Answer is yes. You know, we've all sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. And yet, our holy God, He chooses to keep His promises to us no matter what. This is astonishing. This is astonishing. Let's move on to little d in your notes. He forgives us our sins. He forgives us our sins. We get this from verse 8a. It says, The Lord was a forgiving God to them. God is all about forgiving His people through His Son, Jesus. I want to talk about forgiveness for a second, and I want to talk about this carefully, because um, I assume someone in this room has been touched by um, a spouse cheating on another spouse. And one of the most mind-blowing expressions of forgiveness is when a spouse forgives a cheating spouse, uh, meaning a wife forgives her husband for an affair with someone else, or a husband forgives the wife for an affair with someone else. Biblically speaking, according to Jesus, uh, it is allowed for a spouse to end that marriage uh, in cases of adultery. In some cases, that is the best course of action, depending on the situation. But there's other times a spouse chooses to forgive. And by the way, that spouse can forgive and still divorce. That's, another, that's a whole other can of worms. I won't go there. But there's times, the point is, there's times when a spouse chooses to forgive like Jesus forgave him or her, and the spouse forgives the other spouse, and their marriage stays together. Sometimes it doesn't last. Sometimes it does. But either way, this sort of forgiveness for me is incredible. Your beloved spouse cheated on you. They lied to you. They went behind your back. They put the entire family at risk and the kids at risk. They put the finances at great risk. And yet, despite that, you choose to forgive this betrayer. You choose to try to make it work. That, that's amazing. And it's that same but greater sense of wonder and wow and, and amazement with God despite our betrayal of Him, despite our, my unfaithfulness towards Him, despite me trying to live my own life my own way and my pride and my arrogance against God and other people, He still chooses to forgive us in and through Christ. So would you for a minute here just stand in a place of wonder, a place of gratitude to God for His Amazing grace, his amazing forgiveness. Let's move on. There's one last point, if you're hanging in there. This is point little e in your notes, all right? And we'll bring it to a close. God holds us to account for spiritual growth. God holds us to account for spiritual growth. I love this floating sort of thing. It's just so, so helpful. Um, you know, I have a hard enough time just seeing what I have written down here, let alone if it's moving. It's like, ah, that's not good. We get this idea, this last point from verse 8b. It says that the Lord is an avenger. <laughs> the Lord is an avenger of whose wrongdoings? Our wrongdoings. Now, when most people hear that statement, they get worried. They kind of freak out a little bit inside. Does this mean God at any minute is going to strike me down, especially if I sin? 
Is he going to strike me down as a believer in Christ? The second I break a commandment, is does it, you know, God's going to pay me back in some way? What's the answer to that? This is not what God has in mind, just in a general sense, okay? This is not what, not the point being driven at here. What I think is going on here is something more like how God disciplines us, his kids. He's our ultimate father. We are his creation. We're part of God's family through Christ, okay? Now, why would I suggest that this is kind of what God has in view here? It's because of this. If you're a parent, I'm talking about, I probably talk about the parent analogy too much, but if you're a parent, sometimes you have to discipline your kids, and I'm not going to get into the various forms of discipline, but the fact remains we probably all discipline our kids in some way in this room. Why do we discipline our kids? Out of love, out of concern for them, out of a desire for them to change and, and not be in that same a destructive habit that they find themselves in. And it's the same motivation that God disciplines us, His people, out of love for you, out of concern for you, out of concern for your spiritual growth in Christ. He wants you to, to move ahead spiritually and change. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Very quickly it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So you see, the fact that God avenges and, and chastises us and disciplines us for our sins as Christians in various ways, it's because he loves you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced the Lord's discipline in some way, and God allows maybe a negative circumstance to occur to you. And in hindsight, you're like, that was probably God's discipline because it got my attention. It stopped me from that sinful behavior or those sinful motives that I had in my life. He stopped me from blowing up my life. Thanks be to God. That was the most loving thing God could have done for me. Jesus talks about one, one more idea before we close. Jesus, he talks about how the Lord is like a gardener. And this idea in John chapter 15, verse 2, uh, some of you in the room are avid gardeners. And you love to work with plants and, and put seed in the ground and watch it grow. It's not my cup of tea, but here we go. I'm going to try to talk about gardening for a second and the idea of pruning. And when you prune fruit trees, Jesus talks about like a gardener prunes a fruit tree or like an apple tree or a cherry, cherry tree, it looks like the, the, the pruner is actually doing harm to the tree. It's like he's cutting off branches. How mean can that guy get? But in reality, the reason that this gardener is pruning this fruit tree is so that the tree will produce more fruit. It will, will actually grow and thrive in a bigger way come spring and come the next summer and produce more fruit. So it is with you. So it is with me in our spiritual lives. God desires for you to change and grow into the likeness of Jesus day by day by day more and more. And one key way that he does this in you is by pruning you, clipping off areas of sin in your character and in your life, these remaining sinful patterns that exist and that you are exhibiting in your life. And so some of these things that the Holy Spirit will prune off in you are things like sinful anger and rage. Some of you really struggle with sinful anger like I do. He prunes off the lust and the porn that you allow yourself to indulge in. Thanks be to God for that, because I can wreck everything. I can wreck a marriage. He prunes off your shopaholic ways. Thanks be to God, that can destroy a financial situation. He prunes off 
Perhaps you ignoring the needs of the poor in our own city and the marginalized. He prunes off perhaps your unproductive habits in your workplace or in your job or in your business. He does that. And that actually helps the financial bottom line, helps you get ahead in your job, maybe get that promotion that you would not have gotten otherwise if you had stayed in that place of unproductive work behavior. Would you be in a place of wonder now and amazement that despite how great God is, despite how holy and perfect and pure He is, how transcendent and over and above all creation He is, that He would choose to do the patient work of a pruner in our lives. He doesn't have to do this. He chooses to prune us, to discipline us, to chastise us for our own good and for our own spiritual growth that we might thrive in an increasing way in our lives. Thanks be to God for His chastisement. Would you pray together as we bring this to a close? We stand in amazement and wonder at how holy you are, how transcendent and great you are, but more than anything, that you would actually have any time for us despite our sin and rebellion. Even as Christians, we continue to battle sin and battle this self-centeredness in our lives. And we're so grateful that your grace is available, your forgiveness is available on an ongoing daily basis through what your Son has done and accomplished for us in his cross. We owe you everything. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for your patience for us. Thank you for your daily grace that's available to us. Thank you for allowing us to become your priests, to serve you and serve others in this church and in this world. We owe you everything because of the gospel. And we love you, Lord, for your cross and for your resurrection. In Christ's name, amen.